Welcome to Remotely Creative, a RimCab podcast where we talk to artists, designers, and wildcards about how they're surviving in the era of COVID-19 isolation. I'm your host, Rob Flattery. With me today is Naomi Clark, a game designer, writer, and professor at the NYU Game Center. We hosted Naomi as a visiting artist on our campus back in 2017, where she talked about cultivating a more nuanced appreciation of games using Italian food as a metaphor for taste. Like many of you using the time in quarantine to get in touch with old friends, we thought it would be a great time to check in with Naomi and see what she's been up to. Before we begin, please note this episode discusses some adult themes that may not be suitable for all ages. Naomi, thank you so much for being here today. Um, My pleasure. Yeah. How's everything going in your world of isolation? It's it's going okay, to be honest. Uh, I usually am hanging out in New York and Brooklyn. Uh, that's where I teach at uh, New York University's game design department. Uh, but ever since we switched over to remote teaching, uh, my family decided to uh, go to the beach, which sounds a little more luxurious than it is. Um, my uh, my partner's grandparents uh, retired. Uh, you know, a couple generations ago to a small home out on the Jersey shore. Uh, and they've since passed away, but sort of it's remained in the family. So we decided to to come here where it's a little less crowded, uh, where there's a backyard where uh, my nine month old daughter can, can crawl around uh, in the grass. It's uh, a little bit less crowded than Brooklyn. I think that was kind of the main thing for us. Uh, and we also get to, to hang out with, um, with my mother-in-law who's, who's, who's here. And so we get to, you know, have a little bit of a family unit. So that, that's been a big difference for me from compared to before the, uh, the pandemic hit, but uh, overall I, I've, I've been feeling pretty fortunate, pretty lucky and, and able to kind of settle into a fairly stable daily rhythm. Totally. I say pandemic with a yard is definitely a bonus for those yep. of you who don't have a yard normally. Um, so that's cool. Jersey Shore, there's, you know, some good stuff on there. There's also a lot of weird stuff. And I think that may add to the charm, right? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's a little different when you're not going outside all that much, I have to say, compared to a, to a usual year. There's definitely a little bit of uh, tension between people who are here year round, uh, wondering like, oh, all these people who have summer homes, are they going to suddenly come flooding in? Uh, you know, as soon as Memorial Day hits. And indeed, there were a bunch of Memorial Day parties around here. Uh, so there, there's some tension around that and a little bit of um, surfers who don't want to be told what to do, uh, getting uh, lectured by, by cops who are trying to enforce social distancing rules and stuff like that. So that's, that's kind of the scene around here, which is diff- definitely different than usual. And there's a lot less, yeah, less crowds, less people, you know, walking along the boardwalks and things like that. Are, are people observing the the mask order? Do you see a lot of people wearing masks or a lot of people without? When, if you go to like a supermarket uh, or a store, yeah, a store like that, when they, when you're inside those stores, generally people are following those orders. Um, they're be, you know, being pretty good about it. Uh, store owners are asking people to do that and people are, are complying. Um, when you're out and about, like walking out on the streets, uh, you generally don't, I don't see that many people wearing masks. And uh, Compared to what friends of mine in New York are saying, uh, there are yeah, a lot fewer people here are wearing masks. Maybe they, um, that, that might be in part because when people are out and about, they're usually exercising. So you see like a lot of joggers and people bicycling without masks. 
Uh, and the, the density here is sparse enough that you can easily walk 10, 20 feet away from people. Uh, so that might be contributing as well. People don't feel like they need a mask if they can, you know, be walking on a mostly empty beach. Right. No, that makes sense. I, that's one of the interesting things, you know, that I'm seeing on the news lately is just everybody's like, just talking about just wear the mask, just wear the mask, just wear the mask. And so when I go out, I kind of notice, are people wearing them, you know, and it's always interesting, like when you go to a store, and then there's somebody who's real defiant, like, I'm not going to put on a mask. And, you know, the, the store manager at the grocery store is like, well, we're not going to let you in. So right yeah those types of tensions i think they're stressful for everybody right they create this a little bit of a feeling of a dissension and like disrupt the notion that we're like we're all on the same page trying to get through this together and keep each other safe uh and that can be that, that like i think raises everybody's stress level a little totally i you know the one thing that i want to see i like that people are wearing masks but now i need them to actually wear them properly where it covers <laughs> their nose and their mouth because when I just see people's noses peeking out, I'm like, I don't think you understand how this works. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely seen some of that as well. It's a little bit like, what what exactly do you think? Or are people wearing their masks on their foreheads uh, is a little weird too. <laughs> the, the mask is the new sunglasses. The people right. are gonna be like, where's my mask? Where's my mask? And it's <laughs> just on their forehead. So what are you working on lately? Oh gosh, a few things. And it, and it has changed a little bit since the pandemic. Um, I decided that I would release a new edition of my card game. Uh, and uh, that's a card game that I started working on 2014. So gosh, like six years ago now. So when I uh, visited, um, visited your school a few years ago, I think it had recently come out. It's called Consentical. Uh, and it's my, my card game about a human and an alien trying to find romance with each other, uh, even though you can't uh, speak to each other. Um, and people started asking me, is this a good game to play uh, over the internet? And uh, it was an interesting question because I had never quite thought about it in the way that the, the pandemic prompted. Because people used to ask me, oh, could we have a video game of this? Can I play it online with someone um, where I just put my moves in and they put their moves in? And I would generally say, no, you can't really do that. It's designed as a card game. It's about being able to communicate wordlessly with someone. So you have to be able to kind of look them in the eye. Uh, and, and, you know, even though that's, that might be a little bit of an illusion, the whole trick to that game is being able to try and imagine what the other person is thinking from their point of view, kind of model their decisions in your head so that you can figure out how to coordinate. Uh, and my experience from playtesting is that that's much easier for people to do when they can actually look at each other and sort of try and, and make eye contact and try to think about like, okay, what's, what's going on with you? And there's also um, on the easier difficulty levels of that game, you can also do some pantomiming and stuff like that in order to help you along. So I would tell people, yeah, you can't really do it as a pure online game where you'd sort of put moves in your phone and send them, you know, like as if you're playing draw something with your friends or some, or a game like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when suddenly when all of the social distancing began and everybody was following the stay at home orders and all of this stuff, suddenly people were online and looking at each other way more than ever before. 
you know, we, we had Skype calls and stuff like that um, before the rise of, of Zoom and everything. But my experience in Skype calls was that people uh, tended not to really look at each other too much. <laughs> uh, and now, now I think it's a little bit different. Uh, we're all getting kind of exhausted staring into webcams after like a couple hours of being in a meeting or something, right? But we also have this feeling like, oh, this is actually our chance to see this person. Uh, I'm not, you know, we're not going to be able to like get together face to face. So if I want to have quality time with, with, you know, my, with my friend who is in quarantine or my family members who are far away and I don't know whether I'm going to be able to fly to go see them or something like that. Uh, it becomes much more meaningful to have that social um, interaction happening face to face through a video camera. So um, yeah, in, in my department where we're all game designers and, and we make our, our own games alongside teaching, we started really thinking about like, oh, what kinds of games and activities would be suitable for doing uh, like with a web camera as really the backbone. And I thought, oh, actually this is a context that this type of online play makes more sense for my game because you can, as long as uh, each person has a set of cards, you could actually uh, each be playing separately uh, and then just show each other the cards that you played and you could also look at each other. Uh, so in some ways, it's actually a little bit more straightforward than for a lot of games, uh, because trying to play a complex board game with each other the, over the internet, over Zoom, uh, the challenge is, of course, where do you keep the state of the board? Like, uh, if, how are you going to keep track of where everything is and all of that, of that stuff? You'd have to have multiple copies in sync at every location, or you'd have to play online using a tool like Tabletop Simulator. But... Um, with my game, yeah, so I'm, I'm releasing an edition that kind of does a couple things. One, it just points out like, well, here's how to do it if you're gonna play separately. You just each need to have one half of the game and then you can play the game together and just keep here, so you know, point your camera at your face, uh, you know, show, the, show the cards on camera and then you know, keep track of how many tokens you have. And then I'm also, at the same time, I'm gonna be releasing with that uh, a way to play the game online in a, in a tool called Tabletop Simulator that I just mentioned. So Tabletop Simulator is kind of a genius idea that you know, dates back maybe 10 years. Uh, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just a simulation of a tabletop with 3D cards and tokens and pieces and boards that you can, you can toss cards around like you're dealing poker. Um, or you can, you can even flip the board over if you get frustrated while you're playing chess. But all of these things are, are simulated with physics. So uh, you can actually play any game uh, in Tabletop Simulator, even if the, the rules are not programmed into the code of the game, because the, the human beings can just move the pieces around. Okay. If that makes sense. So you could have Monopoly. All you need to do is have a Monopoly board and a little shoe and a little car and then all the cards that are in Monopoly and the money. And then you just, you know, instead of having the computer operate it for you, you just say like, oh, okay, I'm the banker. You pass go. I have to give you $200. And you just, you, you literally inside the game, you click on a $100 bill and you move it over to your friend's pile. And you do the same thing again and you gave them $200, right? So uh, it's uh, interesting because that means that you can quickly get almost any game, any tabletop game set up there. So I'm putting all the cards and tokens for Consent Goal into Tabletop Simulator, uh, along with some of the rules and some other little pieces to make it easier to track. Uh, and then telling people like, hey, you can get this super cheap 
it's going to go on pandemic sale and I'm, I'm going to release it and uh, give people an opportunity to play a game that's all about all, all about like empathy and communication and trying to coordinate your minds together, which I think is, is maybe an interesting sort of um, entertainment to pursue at this time when we might be feeling you know, far away from each other and unable to, to touch in person. Nice. I, I want to talk about interspecies erotica, but, but first, <laughs> I do want to tell you, talking about all these like board games, um, a couple friends of mine and I decided that during the pandemic, and you know, we normally had a bowling league, we would bowl every Wednesday night, Obviously, that got canceled. So mm -hmm. we decided we're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. The problem is not one of us has ever played Dungeons and Dragons ever. So <laughs> nice. Um, ne never even thought about it. So I bought like the little like advanced Dungeons and Dragons beginners starter set, and then we got on Zoom on Wednesday night, and I cracked the the plastic on it, and I opened it up. And I realized that we have no idea how to play Dungeons and Dragons or role-playing games whatsoever. <laughs> so after basically me reading to everybody for two hours, we decided this isn't going to work. We'll have to wait until we, we come in person. And then we just bought a bunch. I bought it just a bunch of like card games. Um, and I'm looking down trying to figure out what they are. But just um, one is where, you know, you there's two actors and then you have to kind of match them together, kind of like the Kevin Bacon game, um, you know, how how you can connect them if they haven't been in a movie each other. Right, right. Another one is, you know, you pick a, an accent and then you pick uh, a saying and you have to read it in that accent. And um, I have like a little document camera, so I'm just kind of showing the cards under the document camera and then we're connecting on zoom and it's it's been really great mm -hmm. to do that so i'm really interested in um more card games i have used kind of like the tabletop simulator we tried it with with one game and i don't know if it was the official tabletop simulator it was some game um some little website that we found but the problem with us is uh, there was four of us and we can't be trusted and everybody could move stuff around and, and do things. So that, that was the issue. Uh, yeah. It's harder to catch people cheating when um, all you see is like a little disembodied cursor hand. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was like, who's doing this? You know, Jay stopped us. Jim stopped us. We couldn't figure out what was going on. So we, we ended that, but um, let's, Let's talk about interspecies erotica. What, <laughs> how did you get there? Where, where did that, uh, that come from? Yeah, so that, that's an idea that had been brewing for a long time, actually. Um, it, it initially started as a response to uh, another game called Tentacle Bento, which uh, was a project that launched on Kickstarter probably back in like 2011, 2012. Uh, and it was actually one of the first card games that was banned from Kickstarter. Uh, because uh, the the content was found to be uh, inappropriate and violating the, the Kickstarter rules. And a lot of people had protested about it. And the, the idea in that game was that you played a tentacle monster and you were trying to, quote unquote, capture uh, sexy college girls uh, with the implication that there was something sexual and, and you know, uh, in the 
in the, the tentacle rape genre of Japanese anime. Uh, and so this idea that, you know, that was the victory condition for a game didn't sit well with a lot of people. I knew a lot of people who were sort of protesting and sending letters to Kickstarter about it uh, as a, something that was kind of you know, glorifying sexual assault in a way that was meant to be like a humorous riff on the, you know, the, the porn genre from Japan. Mm -hmm. And I realized back then, oh, you know, I have a really fraught relationship to that, I, you know, that I, the idea that that's a really prominent genre in Japan because um, that type of, uh, you know, hentai porn and like tentacle, tentacle porn uh, really started getting imp imported to the United States around the time when I started college back in the, the 90s. And um, the, yeah, and so I started getting, uh, yeah, I don't know, I, I guess not, I'm not getting a lot of flack, but I started just hearing this trope start to get repeated, like, oh, Japan, that's like where all the tentacle rape comes from, right? Um, as if it was sort of a, a, a typical uh, Japanese genre, when really it was, it's a little bit of a quirk of fate that, uh, certain translation companies decided to import a lot of that mm -hmm. stuff to the United States and it kind of became, you know, blew up beyond its original scope. But, um, yeah, so I, I've always had this weird relationship to it where I'm like, Oh God, not that again. <laughs> uh, and then also thinking, you know, why, why couldn't this be better and more interesting than the stereotypes that people associate it with, where it's just all about rape. Like the idea of, what is what is an alien's sexuality? What are what are these other beings like? What would it be like to be in love with an alien? It's something that some sci-fi writers have explored over time. And I started looking into this, and I realized you know there's some interesting sci-fi writers like James Tiptree Jr., who's written a couple short stories about you know falling in love with an alien, and you know other people like Octavia Butler and Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, a lot of uh, of female sci-fi writers actually have kind of looked at like, what would it mean to have an encounter with, with a being whose body was radically different than yours? So I'm like, actually, that's kind of interesting. I wish that that, I, I kept thinking, you know, I wish that people were exploring that in, in card games and animation and comic books and whatever. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, why, why couldn't you just make a game that was about human beings and, and aliens trying to figure out how to, how to, how to do it together? Like, could do our, do our parts work? Uh, can we figure out how to have a consensual relationship so that it's not just evolves into this old ho hokey idea of, you know, oh, if there's an alien being or a demon, they're obviously going to want to to rape you or something, right? <laughs> do you do you remember the TV show Out of This World from the 1980s by any chance? I think so. That that was about aliens, right? Like it's a sitcom where there's aliens that live next door. No, it was uh, about a girl, a teenage girl who was half alien. Oh, uh, right. Her name's Evie. And they had this weird, like, glass globe. And that's how her dad would talk to her. It was like a little sphere, try or not sphere. It was a, a cube. And that, it glowed. And that was how her dad talked to her. But it was, it was this whole idea of aliens and, and humans love each other, but we can't tell anybody. <laughs> right. It would be too controversial. So I don't know. There's something that I think is both funny, a little bit embarrassing, um, you know, a, a little bit charged, uh, but overall just sort of goofy um, that I liked about it. Because I, th I feel like when you pair that with you know, a game, then you maybe have a little bit of this liberation of like, okay, it's just a game. 
I can feel free to like be silly. Uh, I can goof off. I can I can maybe break the rules in the way that I normally wouldn't, like you and your friends. Uh, and I, so I thought it made a, made for a good match. Yeah, I, I for me that you know just I haven't played the game, but just kind of looking into it and finding out more about the game. That the most fascinating part to me was well, you can't talk to them, so you have to you know actually stare at them and. For me, I I was thinking about oh like that would be something cool to play with my wife and you know we could just stare at each other and try to have conversations that way. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a lot of people who bought the game and who have talked talked to me about playing it have been yeah people in couples and who play it with their partners for exactly that reason. And I've heard really good stories. I've actually heard great like uh, played on the first date stories where you know people you know kind of oh, hit no. it off. Or like we're like oh wow we're really in sync right i've also heard stories where it's like it exacerbated existing tensions in the relationship where it was like you never you never understand what i'm thinking i can't believe you thought i would do that don't you know me at all and so like that kind of stuff can bubble up too <laughs> all right maybe i need to rethink this no i'm i'm fine um i like the idea that you don't need match.com you just need need this game and that that is how you get into a lasting relationship. I can see the infomercial now. So Yeah, you know, I, I really do believe that there is a certain kind of skill involved. And it's one of those mutual things. It's like teamwork on a, on a you know, on a basketball team or whatever, right? Being able to kind of be in, in tune with each other. And you can get better at it with individual people between, you know, two people. And you can kind of develop it a little bit on your own too. And I think that there's something, there is something that's potentially attractive if you think about like, what qualities would you want in in a partner or you know a, a spouse yeah somebody who can like really get in tune with you so i i'm kind of hopeful like and i don't want to make any grandiose claims but i'm a little hopeful that this game lets people practice that or or fool around with the idea a little bit and think about what's what what works and doesn't work for them uh that it's at least a little bit of a a, a dumbbell that you can lift to exercise that muscle <laughs> and feel it totally no it sounds awesome i'm i'm excited for it to go back on sale i'm gonna i'm gonna pick it up so yeah so it'll be a virtual version no cards but with instructions for you to play it online and play it in tabletop simulator nice and so when you released the game originally you it was on kickstarter correct it was on kickstarter and that was to uh fund the the production of the actual physical materials yeah, so we got like, you know, 7,000 copies made over in China and then shipped around the world. And all of that, that stuff is a little disrupted right now too. Of course, the biggest board game industry is going through a tricky period of time um, because so much of it has been reliant on international trade in recent years. Yeah, totally. Um, what's, your, what's your thoughts on Kickstarter? Do you think that's the still a good, honest place or is there better? Yeah, I think I think it's probably still the the tops, uh, the sort of most reliable place for crowdfunding. Uh, and the interesting thing from an artist's point of view or a designer's point of view is that they have a really loyal audience of people that just like shopping on Kickstarter. Uh, so, you know, about half the people that bought my game were people that, you know, had never heard of me, uh, had never heard of this weird idea for a card game before. They weren't on my mailing list. They didn't have any overlap with uh, places where they would have heard about this project that I was working on. They just found it on Kickstarter just by browsing, right? So for a lot of people, it's like a big shopping mall and they choose what to buy. And that is actually part of what really makes Kickstarter a stable enterprise in a community is that 
those people, the, the Kickstarter fans, I guess you could call them, um, they, they kind of can have a good sense for which projects are viable, which things are, are things that you, know, sh should, you should uh, get funded through Kickstarter that makes sense with that as a funding model, which things are, are liable to make it across the finish line. So there's a, they, they kind of perform this interesting quality control function as well. Um, although, you know, also they're a little bit of tastemakers and, you know, they like certain types of things. They, they, they like stretch goals and, and all of that stuff, which that, that's a much more controversial question. Like, what do I think of stretch goals? That can be a double-edged sword for sure. But I, I think Kickstarter is still pretty viable for certain types of projects. Um, if you're trying to raise funds to, uh, to just to get a project across the finish line, to actually manufacture and distribute it, uh, if it's a physical product, uh, or if you are trying to maybe like raise some funds in order to market the game and you want to do a bunch of pre-sales, uh, something like that, it can be uh, still be really useful. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I've got boxes of technology that I have, you know, backed on Kickstarter that are just doesn't work anymore because the companies are out of business. And since this pandemic, I think four, four or five of the companies that I've backed, you know, that's made products on Kickstarter, they've just gone out of business. Um, yeah, crazy. no, for sure. That that doesn't surprise me. I think it's it's a really a place for small businesses. And you got to ask yourself, like, okay, if I were, if I'm going to buy a home security system, that's a good example of something I would not buy on Kickstarter, right? Because I, I, I don't want to, you know, go to a small business that might be out of, out of business in a year or two with a home security system, because then who's going to support it? Right. Yeah. But with a board game, uh, that's kind of a no-brainer. Like, doesn't matter if I go out of business. Everybody still has the game, right? Uh, and to some extent, I think it's true of digital games as well. As long as they're not online services, uh, they're going to last at least for your you know, current cycle of hardware uh, and you'll, you'll be able to play it. Yeah, yeah I've, I've become more, more choosy on Kickstarter just because I, I don't want to say I've got burnt because I always mm -hmm. know the risk involved. But, you know, I, I've been more choosy. I, I did just back Todd McFarlane, um, who did Spawn. Um, he's re-releasing like a spawn action figure and talking about stretch goals that guy's a little crazy, a little nuts anyway, but about every 18 minutes, he sends out an email. All right, we're going to do this. We're going to do gold foil. We're going to do this. And I was just like, I want to give you the money. I want to support this, but I'm just tired of hearing everything you have to say about it. Yeah. I think that that culture of trying to hype things up by having just a ton and ton of stretch goals that's where it starts to get a little weird for me um where you know there's there's companies that have whole plans where they've mapped out all the stretch goals and how they're going to roll it out way in advance of the whole campaign and they're planning to raising this you know this many millions of dollars um yeah it starts to feel a little orchestrated and and odd <laughs> totally and it, it, it's it's annoying um especially when it's like, all right, I back this, I support this product. And then the next day they're like, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. But to each their own, I, I definitely want, you know, small independent people to be able to get their product out and actually get it made and, and all that. So I think it's, it's great. Um, and I like the idea that, you know, there has to be a collective unlike um, what's the other one, GoFundMe or the yeah, one there's where a it's few Indiegogo. Indiegogo, yeah, that's the one um, that 
you can still back it and it can be like seven people back it, but they need all this money and then the product never gets made or the game never gets made. And I think that's a little, little strange. Right. So with everybody being at home, do you think the gaming industry is kind of thriving right now? Yeah, well, if you look at the numbers, um, digital game sales, uh, as well as like hardware sales for games and stuff are probably up 25%, which is year over year, which is just enormous. Um, and actually, I think, you know, uh, some other categories like like podcasts like this one, uh, the ones that are are relying on um, subscriptions and stuff like that, they're and, and advertising, they're actually doing pretty well, too. Uh, so yeah, a lot of forms of digital entertainment, things that people can consume in their homes, like, yeah, they seem to be doing pretty well. And I'm not surprised that video games are doing well. They, a lot of them also uh, are a way that people can connect with each other, right? That's, that's kind of why I'm uh, re-releasing Consentacle in this tabletop simulator form. Uh, and yeah, and they also give you a kind of feeling that there's something in your life you can control a little bit. Totally. Right? You're like, okay, I've got some measurable tasks that I can hammer out and I know somewhat predictably what's going to happen if I just, you know, do X, Y, and Z and get this quest done or plant these seeds in the game or whatever. Uh, and that's, I think is can be really reassuring in times like these. Um, yeah, but maybe almost too reassuring. Uh, if you ask some people, like you don't want that to just lull you away from the fact that, Hey, there's a, there's serious problems going on. There's serious uh, issues with our, our social and political systems that maybe need some fixing in, in the wake of this. But um, at the same time, people just need, need to be able to not completely freak out all the time, right? Like that, I think it's been a challenge for so many of us uh, during the pandemic uh, with just bursts of anxiety or not having things that usually make us feel comfortable or that you know, give us that little bit of psychological insulation from the struggles of the world or like, you know, problems that we face. Uh, yeah, so I think anything that, that helps us actually get a little bit more of that shock absorber mm -hmm. back onto uh, our, our suspension, uh, our psychological suspension is really uh, helpful right now. And I think a lot of, for a lot of people, video games are playing that role. Nice, I, I know you, you shared some hot takes uh, about Animal Crossing. Are you still playing that? Yeah, I, I burnt out on Animal Crossing, actually. Um, I was playing it maybe for the first few weeks uh, of, that, uh, of that game's latest iteration, uh, you know, New Horizons coming out. Uh, and I got really into it. I was playing it every day, you know, every morning and every night. Uh, and then I just got to the point where I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot play this game enough to be able to get all of this to make all the little cherry blossom set that I wanted to. This was back during the cherry blossom season in, in you know, in April, I think it was. Uh, so I just kind of put it on freeze. I was like, I'm not, I'm going to not going to play it. If I go back to it, I'm going to rewind my clock and like pick up on April 9th again. <laughs> or something. Nice. In order to like, you know, I, I basically put my animal crossing Island into cryogenic stasis uh, so that I could, you know, actually deal with it when I felt like I had more mental capacity. But really, I, I've just kind of left it there. Uh, and I, I have a bunch of friends who are playing, so I've been kind of watching what they're doing uh, and seeing it evolve. And I realized I also have so much nostalgia for the original GameCube Animal Crossing from, you know, back in the day, the, you know, the, the early 2000s, uh, late 90s when that came out. Uh, and 
I sort of feel like this new version of Animal Crossing has a lot more features in some ways. You can go to your friends' islands and stuff like that, which is cool. But it's also missing a little bit of the soul of the original <laughs> Animal Crossing. So I, I, I uh, and that's, you know, that's like a, an old school cranky fan's opinion. Um, but yeah, it still, it just doesn't quite do it for me because it, it, it lacks some of the, the mystique and charm of the original Animal Crossing. I've never played it. Uh, people have explained it to me. Um, I never played the, the original or the new one. And I, I, I always say, is it like The Sims? It reminds me of The Sims, but... It is a little bit, a little bit, but it's also very much about um, doing things a little bit slowly. It's, it's a fantasy about what if you just quit your job and moved to the country and you like lived in a little house out in the country and you just went out and picked berries and caught fish for your for your dinner and you just stopped worrying about everything else so part of the point of that game is that you (laughs) (laughs) so part of the point of that game is that you do things a little bit slowly it takes time and like you you can't do everything in one day you got to come back tomorrow (laughs) okay so it's not a tamagotchi is that no not exactly (laughs) that's that that i would say is a little bit more frenetic uh animal crossing is much more about the uh your environment it's like yeah, you want to go collect some honey? Well, you can you can find some honey, but you can't just, you know, whack a mole a hundred times to get a hundred things of honey. You have to wait tomorrow. You can like maybe go and try to find some more or something like that. Okay. <laughs> it's a distance game. All right, I get it. Yeah, get it. it is. It is. And I think that the slowness is part of what's important. And I think that, you know, they they didn't botch it with this new one, but I think they, they definitely gave in a little bit to, um, to people that want to like, you know, um, whack-a-mole or you know pull the slot machine a whole lot and and, and play a ton so um yeah it's, it's an interesting kind of fantasy that's part of what i was talking about um when i was doing those hot takes about animal crossing uh online um is that yeah it's a it's a particularly japanese idea of there's like the old hometown that like your ancestors came from it's the rural life that's kind of lost now with the hustle and bustle of the, the 21st century and what if you could get back there? What if you could get back to the old homestead? And so everything about Animal Crossing is kind of um, drawn from that that Japanese like nostalgia for the rural life. <laughs> nice. Um, did it? Do you know when it came out? Did it come out like it seems like the pandemic, like probably increased the sale of this game? Yeah, it did. I mean, I think it's it's become maybe the fastest selling game of all time oh wow within like a month period or something like that so it it did just gangbusters it broke a whole bunch of records um i remember the exact uh the exact record that it broke it might have been console game or or something like that but it's it, it just was selling out left and right um record numbers of players and Nintendo was a big enough company that they were able to handle all these players, uh, in part because you're mostly playing um, by yourself. You're, it's mm-hmm. not like a purely online game. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it, it had almost perfect timing for this pandemic. I mean, I know a lot of people who were looking forward to it uh, before any of the, you know, the, the real indications that social distancing was going to happen started. Uh, there were people, of course, anticipating this game late last year. Uh, but the timing when it came out, I, I just, I, I remember there were so many people I knew who were sort of thinking, okay, at least we'll be able to play Animal Crossing and we can all get together 
and we'll be able to like make our little islands and hang out together. Uh, it's, it hasn't turned out quite as fantastic, I think, as, as uh, some people were hoping because it's a little harder to share an island than anyone thought. You kind of have your own island and other people can visit. So it's not quite a collaborative uh, dream scenario. But um, I, think it's, I think it's really uh, has helped get a lot of people through some of the, the bumps, especially early on in social distancing. They at least have this little retreat they can go to. And I have a bunch of students who, who like did uh, studies of the design and experience of Animal Crossing and how different groups of, uh, of people were using it and socializing it in it. And interestingly, I, I kept hearing stories of people recreating part of their real life inside Animal Crossing. So like somebody who was a, a rock climbing instructor would set up a rock wall and have his friends come over and they'd sort of do pretend rock climbing and talk about rock climbing um, inside Animal Crossing. And that of course was in part because like the actual rock climbing gym is closed. Right. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask, and you kind of touched on it there about like creating digital versions of, of something you do in real life um second life the game or the the platform game right. whatever um i remember it's been a while now but a lot of universities were buying islands and and they oh, were yeah. going to teach and that what obviously that didn't didn't work out so well but what what are your thoughts about that and how that kind of has evolved over digital teaching yeah it, it's interesting there there's a bit of this fantasy uh, operating in Second Life that the purpose, that, that, that the, the ideal form of the internet is going to be something where you, you have a body of some sort that looks like a real human body and you're walking around in a virtual space and there's, there's distance and you can see a crowd of people and feel like you're in a big, like, you know, crowded theater or something with a whole lot of other people. Uh, and People, and I think this comes in part from old cyberpunk novels, right? Mm -hmm. William Gibson or, or Bruce Sterling, those guys, and uh, Neil Stevenson's uh, um, novel Snow Crash is maybe you know, one of the best examples of this, where there's this whole virtual world that people live in online, and you, like, you plug a cord into the back of your head like in The Matrix, and then you're, you're there, you have your body in this virtual world. I think that that's... That, so that's still very alluring for some people. It explains a lot of why, uh, you know, some people are spending a lot of time in VR right now. Uh, in fact, the sort of the successor to Second Life um, is a, a program called VR Chat, which is a little bit like Second Life with VR on steroids um, with a whole lot of like anime uh, fox and bunny girls running around. <laughs> of course. So it, I, don't, I don't even need to say anything else. You can kind of extrapolate from there, but... Um, yeah, I think for some people, this idea is really alluring, but I, I think it's always going to be a little bit of a niche. The people that want to have the feeling of, oh, there's a real space that I'm really in where I walk around. Um, and this, this pandemic has proved to be a really interesting test of that because the, the, the main reason that Second Life never took off as a teaching tool is because there's not really, there was never really a strong need for it, right? Like, is it better than actually having people in a classroom in person? Probably not. Uh, is it even the best form of remote learning? Probably not. When you, when you get right down to it, when you think about the challenges in remote learning with, um, can you make a social connection? Can you see if people are understanding what you're saying, right? Can you, 
and you feel like communication is happening and understanding is happening. Um, is a virtual world where you have an avatar that you're puppeting around actually the best way to do that? Um, and is it the most accessible thing, right, for people who are having hardware problems? Uh, proponents of VR chat are saying, well, VR chat is better because in VR chat, when I move my arms around in my head, my virtual reality puppet also moves, which is like a whole other level of, of feeling like you're embodied as a, um, as a busty anime cat girl, like I was saying. And so again, there's all sorts of other weird, there are weird layers that, that start to accrue around both Second Life and VR chat. But I think for most people, they don't really want that. And it's actually quite a lot of intense experience and expensive hardware costs to get set up to, to do VR chat or even to do Second Life. So I think actually the, there's some sort of minimalist rule operating here that um, I don't think we've quite articulated yet, but it's really about, you want people to be able to focus on the most important aspects of being together and communicating, understanding each other, being able to have a social experience. And for me, I think, you know, it turns out that the, the path of least resistance to that is not creating a 3D virtual world. It might be, like part of it is definitely the Zoom component right? We've seen like Zoom has really taken off for a reason. It's because it's providing a bunch of that minimum necessary connection to actually be able to see like, oh, there's another human being. I see your face, you see my face. And then we do a little bit of that like empathetic mirroring, which kicks in automatically in everybody's neurons uh, when we see another human being. Um, I don't know if it's the only component, like there are probably some other things that are still missing that uh, we might be figuring out a lot more uh, if if our world is kind of reshaped a little bit by the fact that we're all um, in a stay-at-home order right now and, you know, maybe changing a little bit the nature of work and school in ways that we can't anticipate yet. But I, I think it'll probably have the most impact uh, on, like, you know, what is the future of online gaming? Um, is it all about these virtual worlds or is there another new avenue that's opening up that's about helping people connect in ways that are not all about uh, puppeting a 3D avatar. <laughs> totally. Um, so you you mentioned that you were you finished up your term your semester um, remotely. Yep. How did that go? Did you enjoy interacting with your students online? I mean, did it did it work out a little bit better than you hoped, or was it just it, it fire sale? Okay. <laughs> it went okay. Um, my students, I, I, I was only teaching one class this semester uh, because I'm on uh, parental leave. Like I said, I have a, a very little daughter. Um, but it, it went all right. I think most of my students were sort of introverted and preferred to keep their cameras off. And I was not the type of teacher who was like, turn your camera on now, right? Uh, I, want, I just want people to be able to concentrate and learn and take in information and discuss. And actually, I think you know, the vast majority of my students, I would say maybe seven out of eight of them, they were able to engage and do a bunch of interesting work, finish their projects, collaborate with each other. Uh, and then I, I really worry about the, 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 the one out of eight student for whom things are not working that well. And that's for a bunch of different reasons. Some people just have difficulty with technology uh, or it's actually maybe exacerbating some people's problems with attention and focus, right? That it's easier to just kind of drift away and not pay attention to uh, a lecture if it's 
purely online, or if you're trying to coordinate all of your, your group collaboration work uh, on your joint project with your teammates and you're doing it all through, through Slack or Trello or Discord or something, um, we, I think anybody who's used those types of platforms knows that, know that there are certain collaborators who are just like, what happened to that person? We haven't seen them in weeks. They kind of drifted off into the ether and vanished. And that's, you know, that might be, that's one thing if it's like a member of your uh, weekly poker night just doesn't show up, right? Hmm. It's another thing entirely if it's like, well, this is this person's education, they're trying to get a degree, but they've kind of like drifted away. So I think a big open question for me uh, as we go forward into, into you know, the, the next semesters where we're definitely still going to have some of this distance learning going on, like how do we, how do we tether people so we're like, hey, come back. Uh, you know, participate in the group. Don't don't uh, don't drift off into the ether of the of the internet. Uh, so yeah, th that for me is the downside. But every for for most of my students, I was actually really pleasantly surprised. Like everybody was kind of putting, you know, putting their back into it, trying to to get something out of their education, trying to participate in class, being very understanding. I think you know, if we all try to be flexible with each other and understand that people have different circumstances, that's when I think this is working the best. And when people are getting like really rigid and being like, no, I need it to be the way it was before, or I'm gonna you know, grade you really strictly because you, it's no excuse, you have to work really hard, like then, then things are going off the, the rails, right? Right, um, and so you're still planning for a fall return. NYU is, hasn't made any like crazy announcements about all online like california or anything no yeah we've nyu in characteristic of fashion has made sort of vague announcements of like well we're gonna do some of this some of that we're gonna have to see how it goes and so um yeah our students and and our faculty as well we're like yeah we're not quite sure what's happening yet uh my if i had to put money on something i would say that yeah we're going to be doing a lot of online classes in the fall uh in part because there are a lot of students who will need to do that for health reasons or will you know prefer to do that to try and stay safe uh, and some faculty as well and then you know we're probably going to be doing some in-person things we're going to sort of start doing those in the fall and then when we get to the beginning of next year we'll see more of that happening um, of course anything could change like i'm i'm definitely I'm not foolish enough to try to make solid predictions <laughs> during a pandemic right i hopefully we've all learned that lesson like, don't, don't say exactly what you think is going to happen. It's probably going to be wrong. <laughs> totally going to be wrong. Whatever you think, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing for us all to remember. It's a, just, a, just in general. Yeah. So our world has changed a lot. And before we wrap up, any final thoughts about how games can facilitate social change? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think right now the where i'm at i'm really thinking about how games can connect people with each other uh when we are we're far away i think that is a really necessary prerequisite for change and then then i also go back to uh, a long-term feeling that i have which is that games are at their best when they get people to reflect on themselves like their their assumptions their preconceptions what they already know like even how your own brain works, I think it's something that a game can help you come to terms with a little bit. So if we put those two pieces together, then I think you know games have the opportunity to, to get people to reconsider how we relate to each other, how we operate in groups, 
And if we, you know, if we expand that, then that means we could uh, have games that uh, allow people to reconsider and reflect on how we operate in organizations, how we collaborate with each other, how we try to understand each other, and then maybe even uh, how we form uh, political movements or political organizations. Like, how do we try and actually touch each other uh, and convince each other that change is necessary? So it's at that most human psychological level of understanding, maybe a little bit of empathy, although I try to be careful with that word, that I think uh, games can make a difference. Awesome. That was a great answer. Well, Naomi, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. It's a great series and I'm happy to be part of it. Perfect. Well, you take care of yourself and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode. Remember, you can find links and images from today's guest on our website, remcad.edu forward slash remotely creative. And don't forget to submit your questions for us by emailing remotelycreative at remcad.edu. That's R-M-C-A-D dot E-D-U. Make sure to subscribe to Remotely Creative wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Special thanks to our team here, Gretchen Marie Schaefer, Chris Daly, Mel Kern, Josh Smith, and Madeline Austin for making today's episode possible. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.